The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on ABC News and columnist for The New Daily. And I'm James Thompson, Senior Chanticleer Columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And we are The Money, the Money Cafe. Cafe. And we're on. Uh, we're not in the cafe today because James has COVID. Yes. Mm. Second bout, almost 12 months to the day till my first bout. So you very sound, mild. Very you mild. sound all right. You sound, you sound like you're not sick at all. Yeah, no, I, I, this is my best day. I, I've, I've really only had a, a, a bit of a... You know, a bit of snotty nose and headaches, um, but I, I did I did have my fifth jab about six weeks ago, so I don't know whether to feel unlucky that I got COVID or lucky that I'm uh, got a mild dose. So either way, I'm I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to be with you, James. <laughs> Thank you. <Al>. <laughs> <laughs> you had an interesting piece the other day. Uh, in fact, yeah, two days ago on um, Matt Common going to the US for. Yeah. What's called the Microsoft CEO Conference, which I think is a long-running conference where the CEOs show up. Is that right? That's exactly right, as it says on the um, lid. But uh, th- this year is probably it's probably hasn't been this exciting in in well at least ten years, I guess, because Microsoft's sort of seen as the AI artificial intelligence leader, and from what Common was suggesting, he's expecting a big turnout because everyone around the world's trying to wrap their head around what AI means and who's going to make money off it and how do you win? Yeah, Common told you, told you a few interesting things, such as he reckons it's it's not – well, it, artificial intelligence is huge. It's yeah. the dominant topic yeah. in every meeting. In every meeting. And clearly he'd been on the East Coast uh, talking bank crises and talking to investors and on the West Coast of America – um, but it's interesting that on both sides of the country, AI was the the topic in everyone's. Um, did he uh, did he explain? Thoughts. Did he talk about what Commonwealth Bank is doing in AI? Oh, I don't think they quite know yet, Alan. Um, I mean, I guess they would have uh, what you'd call now basic forms of AI. You know, when you go onto their chat and you know the chat bot tries to automatically answer your question. That that's a that's a basic form of AI. But I think everyone's trying to figure out where this is going to fit into their business. You know, what can be, what tasks could artificial intelligence take on? I mean, this week there's been a funny one. I saw Wendy's, which is a food, fast food chain in the US. They're going to have an AI drive through And you sort of think, yeah, I can see that. That's that's not a bad one. And um, perhaps you could think you, you might run AI in a bank over credit decisions to some extent. So, you know, sifting through standardised forms and standardised numbers to make a decision. So the banks have got a level of automation. Could AI take that to a new level? But I think the interesting point that um, Common made was around sort of the power of incumbency. So these AI models are so expensive to run that it's really the biggest companies that are that are doing it 
going to be able to do the investment in them. So that's Google, Microsoft, um, Amazon. But I also wonder if that incumbency advantage also extends to, you know, companies like the banks. Uh, If these things are expensive to run, they're expensive to deploy, that means the bigger companies will get the advantage of using them first, I would have thought. So I'm sure that's what, what he's thinking too. We probably should recall that um, about a month ago, Goldman Sachs had a big report out that uh, predicted that 300 million jobs yeah. would be affected. I mean, didn't, they didn't say it would be lost, but certainly would be affected. Yep. And clearly a lot of jobs would be lost. I mean, if, if McDonald's or somebody has a AI drive-through, uh, that's instead of a human being, I imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, and the other thing is I, uh, I interviewed a bloke in uh, Tel Aviv yesterday uh, called Idan Shmorak, who is the uh-huh. CEO of an ASX-listed company called Unith, U-N-I-T-H. Um, it used to be called Cloud uh, Crowd Media. It was started by a bloke, a uh, fellow called Dominic Carozo. You remember him? Oh, yes, yes, yeah. So he started this company. But anyway, it's completely transformed now. Dominic's not involved anymore. Um, its headquarters are in Amsterdam. Its uh, its uh, technology hub is in Barcelona, and this bloke, Idan <laughs> Schmorak, lives in Tel Aviv, and it's ASX listed. But anyway, and you had to interview him from Melbourne. Jeez. Yeah, well, that was all right. Paris would have been more suitable. Oh well, um, but look, the, what they're doing is AI avatars. So they create um, an avatar that goes on your screen. Right. That is basically instead of a chatbot, but it's it's and the the customer talks to the screen, talks to the oh. avatar, which talks back at them. Okay. And um, you can a company can get the avatar to look and sound like whoever they want, right? So um, Telstra's avatar could be, if they wanted it to be, uh, the CEO. Right. So every time you go in to talk to Telstra about some problem you've got or anything, up pops the CEO. It, that could be the, that could be it. I mean, they could get. I mean, they probably wouldn't do that. But but a company, a small company, could have the owner as oh. being the person who speaks to the customers. Um, but the point about it is that it replaces call centres. Yes, yes. Um, yep. Because and what he was saying was that they've got them. They haven't. They're still pre-revenue, right? So they're just developing this, and they and the, the, he says they're working with one of the big five tech companies. Uh, he wouldn't say who it was. Um, and the other thing is they've, they're embedding ChatGPT in it. Yeah. Um, which will be quite cheap. But he reckons they can do it. They'll be able to sell it to companies for less than ten bucks a month. Oof. Um, yeah. So. Uh, it could be quite cheap, you know, yeah, for, yeah. for companies to. I, I mean, I don't know what ten bucks refers to. Whether it's, you know, ten bucks per call or something, or whether it's ten bucks all up. But anyway, I mean, the thing is that it'll be it'll be cheaper than running a call center, obviously. Absolutely. Um, and that's a lot of jobs gone. I mean, yeah, yeah. you know, a lot and a lot of jobs in the Philippines too. By by the way. Yeah, I mean. I guess you might say, Alan, that that's replacing lower quality jobs and those people move into better jobs. That would be the hope, wouldn't it? But it doesn't <laughs> always work like that. Well, that's what the AI um, you know, <laughs> uh, pushers are saying. I mean, I, there was a section, I don't know if you read it, there was a section in the budget papers last uh, on Tuesday 
about um, structural challenges or shifts in the economy, mm. um, which had a section on AI. Right. And, and Treasury in that section said that, uh, you know, oh, you know, all these people are going to move to, you know, higher value jobs. Did you, as you spoke to him and, and learnt about the AI avatars, d- did you have any thought that that could be, um, they could replace Alan Kohler on the ABC News with an avatar or? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, I think AI in general is a, a massive challenge for journalism. I mean, yeah. I, I think one of the jobs that will go, or at least to a large extent go, is journalists. Yeah, I know um, about that. Well, straight news journalists. I mean, one of the graphs, yeah. one of the charts yeah. in the in the Treasury budget paper uh, was that showed the decline in uh, routine jobs. Right, so routine manual, and now in the last couple of years, routine cognitive jobs are, dec- are declining now. Yeah, and I think I mean the point I suppose was that AI is going to um, really steepen that curve. In the decline yes. of um, of routine cognitive jobs, and and you know writing up press releases for a newspaper is a routine cognitive job, right? Sure, sure. And, yeah. um, anyone who's doing that for a living is probably going to have to work out how to write a Shonaclear column. <laughs> yes, <I> mean, <laughs> but you've already part- got that. But you've already got that job, so you know. <laughs> That's I'm okay. <laughs> the, the good part of having the avatar, Alan, is it could live on long after you're gone. We could have Alan Kohler on the news in avatar form for centuries. Well, what a thought that is. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've already been on the news for centuries. So. <laughs> True. True. Hey, so. speaking of um, speaking of high value commentary that can't be replaced by um, a, yes. a robot, I, I really loved your budget commentary, which um, uh, pointed out the time-travelling ability of Jim Chalmers. I, I thought that was a great concept. Well, the point I was trying to make was that, and, and he's not the only one who does it, the treasurers always do it, they they announce their um, uh, their numbers, right, and the numbers are the addition of the forward estimates, right? So they say, well, we've, we're going to uh, have cost of living relief of $14.6 billion, um, and um, – that's over the next four years. But then he refers to it in the past tense. We have <laughs> delivered $14.6 billion, right? Well, <laughs> no, he hasn't. Yes. <laughs> He's yes. Re- so I just love the way they, he and all treasurers refer to predictions in the past tense. It's yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah. Who, who gets the credit for the budget, Alan? The, the budget turnaround, I should say, is it? Labor or the coalition, or is it the um, hardworking people of Australia whose tax receipts have? Yeah, well, uh, bought, so I, I, this, I, I, I did a, I did a spreadsheet showing uh, where I calculated the um, the turnaround over two years, right? Which is what the turnaround is, and in 2020, 2021, the deficit was one hundred and thirty four billion, actual, not predicted, and um, this year is four billion surface, so one hundred and thirty eight. A billion turnaround in two years. Um, most of it, I think, seventy percent of it was in the first year, and thirty percent in the second year. And the, and the uh, the biggest contribution was from bracket creep, from income tax income yeah. tax rising. Um, there's been a bit of a there's obviously been some contribution from the fact that they got their um, uh, that well that. 
commodity prices have gone up. Um, I mean, I, I love the way they talk about commodity prices being a windfall when, in fact, it was simply an incorrect prediction. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, and almost deliberately incorrect, right? Because they always underestimate the uh, the price yeah. of commodities. Well, that's right. It's Teresa's hollow log, right? So they so they kind of they predict that the iron ore price is going to be fifty five dollars a ton, uh, you know, now, and it turns out to be a hundred dollars. So they don't go, oh shit, we got that wrong. Sorry. Um, they say they say, oh, this is fantastic. <laughs> this is a windfall. Wacko. Yeah. 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 I thought it was interesting, Alan. I mean, you know, I think Chalmers and co have probably pulled off the sort of something for everyone budget pretty well, um, if if that's what you want to do. It it didn't answer any of the big questions, though. Like, we've still got this issue. There's a little box in in budget paper one about the ageing population and the challenge there, the, the old age dependency, which is ratio, which is a ratio of, people aged over 64 to people aged 14 to 64 is creeping up. I think it's going to go over the next decade from 27 to 31. So we're ahead of America, which is, I looked this up yesterday, is currently on about 30. Um, But, you know, that big picture question of, of how do we manage to continue to pump money into healthcare and aged care um, on, off a smaller tax base as as uh, as the population ages, there's nothing on that. <laughs> there's nothing on the, on that sort of big question. No, and, um, and look, uh, it's it's perfectly clear that what they're trying to do is set themselves up for tax reform in their second term. Yeah, um, and I think, in fact, Albanese said that yesterday. He said something like, you know. Um, uh, we have to have, we have to have a surplus in order to uh, have the credibility so that we can do tax reform in the second year. I think that was roughly his words. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know, there's clearly that. I mean, a lot of people are getting hysterical about um, uh, this is going to be inflationary and cause extra uh, ta- uh, extra interest rate increases. Um, but it actually, uh, Joe Joe Masters from Baron Joey was in the Fin Review this morning talking about uh, saying that it. In her calculation, would add 0.1 percent to yep. inflation, um, uh, which is immaterial. You know, it's not. It is not going to lead to extra um, rate hikes. So I, I think that to that extent, they got it right. You know, they've they've kind of given a bit. They've done some decent uh, reform to Medicare with some extra money, um, and um, uh, it won't be inflationary. Yeah, they've threaded the needle and. What, what what do you what, where where I know I think we've got a question on this later, Alan. So we may, maybe we address it now. The stage three tax cuts. I think our, our our correspondent suggests. Well, you know that's really just addressing the bracket creep that you identified in your spreadsheet. Do you see it that way, or 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 is that is the debate over stage three tax cuts more about that sort of bigger question of when are we going to tackle this issue of Taxing and spending, and 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 <laughs> uh, and the longer term demographic trends. Well, I think um, there's a the, there's an important chart in the budget papers of payments and receipts uh, since 1977 to ni- 2033. So very long term payments payments and receipts, and it's quite clear from that that um, you can and you can see the the effect on stage three tax cuts on receipts. So there's a decline in receipts from yep. next year. On the graph, 
but they just turn around and go back up again. And so not only not only are the stage three tax cuts just another give back of bracket creep from the past, bracket creep just simply um, uh, makes it go away again fairly quickly. You know, <laughs> I mean, and and but the thing about the stage three tax cuts is, um, and the sort of centerpiece of it is the removal of the thirty seven percent marginal tax rate. And so it just goes from uh, – so the, the margins are 30%, 45%, right? So And, and basically uh, 90% – or I can't remember the percentage. Most people in the country, vast majority of people in the country are on 30% um, and stay there. So, uh, you know, that's, a, that's an interesting element of it. I don't agree with it. I think that the, uh, the tax scales ought to be progressive and there ought to be, um, you know, more sort of jumps along the way. I don't really agree with, personally don't agree with flat income taxes um, to the extent that they are flat. And I, you know, and I think that the 45% probably ought to kick in a bit, bit lower. But anyway, um, so the, the, the two sides to the tax, the stage three tax cuts are the changes to the, to the margin, the tax margins, which is kind of what you'd call reform. And then there's the fact that they, that they actually lower taxes as well um, and that's the the lowering of the taxes is the give back of bracket creep anyway yeah yeah well um, it's a it's it's an interesting debate that's coming up so that's right keep raging we probably should get on to questions let's do it um, do you want me to start yeah you start Malcolm says I'm 64 and I don't have a lot of experience in investing but I've always been interested in Bitcoin as a result of this interest, I started to purchase Bitcoin in July 2019 when it was 17 grand. Continued to purchase more as it went to an all-time high of over 80,000 in November 21, and took some profits though, not as much as I should have. I then bought with the then bought more with the profits on the way down to a low of 23,000 in November 22. Now he's still holding and uh, still trading for just for fun. Two questions. Do you think you miss out on the opportunity because you don't really understand the objective and role of Bitcoin in a time of massive global debt, all-time high QE and significant inflation? What are you doing to rectify your inability to understand this technology considering your role as media media investment educators? Yeah, Alan, what are you doing? What are you doing, James? Oh, well... I'm the. Uh, I, I, before you answer, I want to say that I do understand Bitcoin, I've, and I and I've been studying it for quite a while. I don't own any, um, because I don't trust the volatility at the moment. Um, but that's been my sort of. I've missed out to some extent there. I mean, uh, but look, I do understand Bitcoin, and and I think it's a really interesting, um, interesting thing. And I and I I I don't. Um, I don't disparage it at all, um, and I do think Bitcoin is digital gold. Um, I'm not so. And I'm, uh, in fact, I don't feel the same way about most other cryptocurrencies, of which there are several thousand. I mean, most of them are just uh, either scams or you know interesting little things that probably will go nowhere. Um, I think Ethereum is important. Um, the um, uh, the way that the, that that works is really going to be a sort of a, a fundamental driver of uh, finance and um, contracts and transactions in future. So Ethereum is fundamentally different to Bitcoin. Um, 
uh, Bitcoin, uh, sorry, Ethereum is going to be a platform for um, for transactions and and contracts and other sorts of things in the future. Um, so yeah, look, I mean, well, uh, will I invest in it? Maybe I don't know, um, but I do understand it. What do you? Good think? answer, Alan. Oh, the only thing I'd say, Malcolm, is is it. I'm not sold on the role of Bitcoin in a time of massive global debt, all-time high QE and significant inflation. I get the theory. I just wonder why Bitcoin has been falling as inflation has been rising if it's that tool that everyone, that that logic says it is. I just... I just wonder if if it's how it's come through that first test. So that would be my... um, That'd be my comment. Uh, is it well, digital gold? I'm not sure. I, th- I think it's a, t- a tool for, you know, I think it's a tool for essentially speculation at the moment or, or investing. The use cases are fairly limited. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm not sure of its role as an inflation hedge. I just don't know if we've proved that out. But anyway, it's, I think we're all watching it, Malcolm, and, and don't take our – the fact we're not talking about it every week is some sort of criticism of it or um, disparagement of it. There's lots of things we don't talk about every week. Yes. Um, Tim says, love the show. Just curious about a company called company like Charter Hall, whose PFA fund has been performing at about 8.4%, including capital gains and dividends, which seem seems very good since 2019. However, the actual stock itself hasn't performed well at all, dropping over 50% in the last year or so. I thought the company always wins before its funds do, is this purely because they hold a lot of properties and interest rates are rising? We'd love your insights here as to why it's performing so badly and what you think its outlook is. Do you know anything about Charter Hall, James? Yeah, well, it's not just Charter Hall. Uh, it's the entire real estate investment trust sector. It's All of the stocks are trading at a discount of at least 20% to their assets. And, and yes, to Tim's point, that is right. Basically, uh, investors believe that the value of those assets needs to fall and needs to fall sharply um, between 20% and 40%, uh, uh, depending on the discount at, at the various REIT. So what you're doing is is seeing these shares, you've seen these shares trade a lot lower in the last 12 months as people have been betting basically that these REITs are going to have to revalue their property um, starting probably at the June 30 balance date and revalue it quite sharply. So um, it's an interesting one. There's lots of fund managers I know who are looking at this tempted by the big discount, uh, but they're, they're waiting for reality to bite on those real estate uh, valuations. And I suppose the other point is that Charter Hall is more than its PFA fund. Yes, that's right. Yep, yep. And that the, the property story is the one that's hanging over everything at the moment. So. Yeah. That's why you're getting that discount, Tim. Um, Justin says, hello, I recently logged on and registered an online query with ComputerShare and received a response that I should get a response in five working days. This is hopeless. I thought a bot would answer straight away, not a vague auto response. They should look at it. How is this even remotely acceptable? Well, they obviously need to get on the AI bandwagon. <laughs> yes. This is cl- clearly human beings overworked, toiling away in the... You know, dark satanic mills. It's a computer share. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, uh, yeah. There's a. They would have a heck of a lot of uh, customers in inverted column uh, commas or or um, uh, registered shareholders. So 
I guess they'd be the volume of queries would be extraordinary. Um, but yeah, five days does seem a long time. Jonathan says, I'm confused with all the whinging about the banks from the banks that accompany the release of their interim results. Each one has complained that they're not making money from residential mortgages. Shane Elliott even said they're, they're, they're a break even. Is that right? Did he say that? I you think know? he said new mortgages are below the cost of capital. Yep. Right. How is this the case when the official cash rate is 3.8% and the banks are charging roughly 65 I don't know. I know there are other costs, but come on. Um, can can you split the companies into up into ASX listed, international listed, and private companies if possible? All oh, right, okay. Well, back to the banks. Um, <laughs> back to the banks. Uh, the well, the official cash rate is not their cost of funds, Jonathan. Um, they they're not borrowing from the Reserve Bank at three point eight percent. But uh, the, their cost of capital, Alan, is is more around twelve percent. Um, you mean that's their that's the cost of equity capital? Yeah, that's the cost of equity capital. No, so the cost of the, the cost of deposit funds is. I mean, their interest margins. The point is, their interest margins are falling, right? Their interest margins are falling. Yep, yep. Um, and they are writing that the, the the new loans they are writing are uneconomic. That because of because competition is so intense for a smaller pool of uh, loans at the moment. So, yet they're making good money on their back book, which is the existing mortgages they have, which were written at higher rates. But the new loans, the new loans are the ones that Shane Elliott's talking about there that are uh, at break even or below. And so, so we can't really call it a cartel anymore if they're cutting each other's throats, can we? Um, no, I mean I've spoken to all four bank CEOs in the last. Uh, last week and all of them say they have never seen the mortgage market this competitive and what's making it competitive is it the fact they're all using brokers about 60 percent of their their loans are coming through brokers now that that's a big part of it so the only way to get attention with the brokers is is, is on price so that's why you're seeing these big discounts and cashbacks so that turned um, out to be a bad idea didn't it using the brokers yeah, absolutely crikey absolutely. they're killing good, themselves good for customers though good for customers though so yeah yeah um, and the other point is that there's there's just lots more players. So there's little banks, non-bank lenders, a few fintechs. Um, so the, the 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 competition for a shrinking pie is uh, yeah crazy at the moment. It, it's got to sort itself out. Oh well, maybe. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I don't care. They could cut each other's throats for a while, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> maybe we should all switch to new having a new loan. Well, that's what a lot of people are doing, right? They're, they're, you know, and, and I, Phil Lowe said this himself. You, you can save 40 basis points, 0.4%, just by switching your loan. Yeah. Everyone can do it. So if you haven't, you should. Right. Out. Everyone listens to what Phil Lowe says, right? <laughs> Candace says, if making the assumption that interest rates and inflation have not yet peaked, what specific investment opportunities would you suggest to take advantage of this in the short, medium, and long term? Well, I wouldn't suggest any, Candice, uh, not knowing your personal circumstances, but um, I would relay what the Future Fund uh, Chief Investment Officer, Raf Arndt, said recently at a conference that he did, and his three things for an inflationary world were commodities, uh, gold, and real assets. So that would be infrastructure and selected property, I, I guess. Um, so. So, that, so that, what, that, that's the future funds view. BHP and Transurban. Yeah, well, we wouldn't <laughs> we wouldn't suggest specific stocks. No, but but, but yeah. well, that, that's I, probably the best way to access it. Yeah, 
I mean, I suppose people can buy a, a gold ETF directly, but most yep. of the time, most of what you're do, talking about is investing in companies that do these things. You can't really buy toll roads toll road yourself. No, that's very true. Very true. Unless um, you have a future fund. Greg says, not sure if you've seen any of the stories suggesting that Japan's car make- makers and manufacturers of auto components are approaching a sales crisis as a result of their refusal to adopt electric vehicles. It appears that they, and to a lesser extent, US manufacturers are being rapidly left behind in their race against Tesla and Chinese manufacturers. PS just bought a Chinese BYD EV and amazed at the performance and build quality at the price, 45000 after New South Wales rebates. This is definitely a problem. Um, the the chief executive Toyota uh, has, has sort of been um, talking about how they need to catch up in the race. Ironically, Toyota was sort of very early with the hybrid car but have been left behind with the EVs. I mean, I, I guess I would say, Alan, th- th- we're very early in this story, aren't we? Tesla's got a great lead. The Chinese are, are, are coming hard. But all of these big companies, big automakers, have no choice but to move towards EVs. The problem that they've got is that they've also got to support their uh, internal combustion engine businesses as well. So they're essentially trying to run two companies at the same time, a big mature one and a startup EV one. That's a that's a really hard balance to get right. So they are, they are going to fumble around a bit, I, I would have thought. Yeah. And indeed they are, especially the Japanese ones, but yeah. yeah. Oh, no, mind you, what's, who, who's got the Leaf? That's a Mitsubishi, That's isn't a it? Nissan, yeah. Nissan's yeah. got the Leaf. I mean, that, Very, that, was, a, that was an early, early. It was early, yeah. Mover. Small production. Uh, small volumes, though, I think, even still. So, oh, is it? Right. Yeah, still catching up to do. Hmm. Susan's got a great question. She says she's been flummoxed for some time. Um, about something, and she wants to use NAB shares as a background to her question. It was reported, uh, to quote the AFR, that NAB earned $4.07 billion in cash profit, up 17% for the half, but its shares plummeted more than 7% at the open and closed 6.4% lower as investors fretted about competition eating into revenue and rising funding costs. My question is, which investors fret? Do individual investors start quivering, deciding they've had enough and withdraw their money? Do big institutional investors start feeling hot and sweaty and decide to invest in US banks instead? Seriously, I just don't get it. Who makes these big moves? And really, why would they bother to withdraw money on the basis of a profit that's not quite as good as it was predicted based on their crystal ball gazing? Thanks for your explanation. Well, so uh, interesting question this. Um, on the day that uh, NAB shares fell 6.4%, which was 4th of May, um, the turnover was 24.7 million shares um, uh, uh, in 76,598 transactions. Um, so that 24.7 million shares represents 0.8% of NAB's uh, shares on issue. So the, the vast majority of NAB shareholders uh, stayed put, didn't change, right? Um, uh, prices are set on the stock market by what you call the marginal buyers and sellers. Um, a few, a few uh, investors in NAB decided that um, it was time to uh, lighten their holdings. And so they decided to sell some, uh, some and they also decided to take a lower price. And obviously the buyers were happy to buy at that price. So the other thing is to don't forget that every time there's a seller, there's a buyer. So you could just as easily say that um, uh, 
24.7 million shares were bought, <laughs> at, yeah. you know, uh, as opposed to sell. So it's all about what happens at the margin on these moves in sh- on share markets. Um, it isn't most people. It is simply, simply some investors who uh, make a decision to sell at a, at a lower price. We should also say, Alan, that this um, this occurrence of, of big moves on results days has been sort of happening for a few years, and it's it is accentuated, it seems, by programmatic trading or algorithmic trading, where um, a, a share price a share price move starts, and then basically investors who are using computer programs to follow uh, market moves accentuate that move. That they, they, they jump on the back of the buying or the selling and they accentuate the move. So um, we, we have tended to see these quite outsized moves on results days for the last three or four years and, and this time it was NAB. Yep. I think we've got time for just one more question. Paul says, can the RBA move interest rates that are not multiples of 0.25%? If they were really grappling with do we or don't we, then why not do it 10 or 15 uh, basis points, 0.1 or 0.15? Well, they did do that in November 2020 when they reduced the cash rate to 0.1% from 0.25. So that was a point, what was that, a a 0.15% move. 15 basis points, yep. But on the whole, they moved 0.25. I don't know. It's just habit, isn't it? I mean, is there, do you think there's a, a particular reason it's 0.25, James? I don't think there's a particular science, and and it's been interesting. A lot of people have, a lot of economists have speculated in the last, from time to time over the last few years, would they sort of even it out? So we're at 3.85%, um, uh, you know, on the basis of those those old habits, we should be at 4 or 3.75. So there, there has been a thought that perhaps one day the RBA would cut or hike by 15 basis points just to take us back to those nice round numbers. So yeah, it, um, it is a weird one though, isn't it? It's, um, uh, I, I don't know what the... But the I thing is, know. every central bank in the world does the point exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's not as if it's just the RBA. I mean, and so if they started doing different something different, they'd probably get drummed out of the RBA, the central bankers club. You know, they, <laughs> pursed, the lips would be pursed. What are you doing, yes. they'd be saying. Yes, it is, it is funny these, I mean... I, I guess, Alan, the other way to think about it, though, is interest rates are not such a fine, precise tool that calibrating them by, oh, we're going to do 17 basis points or 33 basis points or four basis points. No, that, that's It doesn't right. quite work like that. That's the, uh, that's the point, and that's a, that's a really good way to uh, talk about it, and that's a good way to end our um, money cafe this week, not in the cafe. I'm looking forward to getting back into the cafe next week with Stephen Main. Um, so send in your questions and we will try to get to all of them. Um, can't, as you can tell today, we've not got to a lot of questions. We just simply get too many. Um, and uh, to answer them all, we'd have to just do nothing but answer questions, which, you know, we don't want to do that. We have to have a bit of a chat. Anyway, so send your question to themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. Keep the questions short and sharp um, uh, so that you're more likely to get them answered if you do that. Um, so until next week, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, etc. 
And I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. Talk to you next week.